Welcome to Imaginarium, an alternate history of art, a podcast where we delve into the most obscure parts of art history. Hello, dear listeners. I'm your host, Naja. And in this podcast, we try to shed light on less studied parts of the history of art and visual culture. In today's episode, we're going to pretend to get ready for a very long trip. The kind that we will come back from an entirely different person. Let's pack our belongings in a very pretty suitcase. Stuck up on sunscreen as you always should. And fly away then, together, into the sun. And discover the world of illustrated traveling advertisement in the beginning of the 20th century. Let's begin. Traveling, as mundane as it may seem now, used to be a much more difficult experience and ordeal. While it can take now less than a day for a transatlantic flight, it used to take days and weeks to travel. Taking a vacation or simply going from one city to another, was a whole thing. Of course, traveling is always something that has been done, from leisure travels or business ventures. But today we're looking at the intersection of art and tourism, especially in the first half of the 20th century. But we should still try to see how it got to that point. During the 18th century, there was a practice that became fashionable for rich young men of the aristocracy and of the upper class of society, the Grand Tour. The Grand Tour, which is where we now get the word tourism, was a tour of Europe during several months, where they would be able to stay in various European countries and cities and learn about the arts music, history, and the classical period, and essentially be acquainted with culture. They visited well-known historical and architectural sites, and listened to music, and had the opportunity to look and physically witness the work of arts of the Grand Masters. The ability to send your sons on a Grand Tour was definitely a show of social status, of wealth and class, and a way to truly consolidate your place into the high society. In short, it was a display of power. During the 18th century, and with the popularization of this Grand Tour, emerged a new type of art, which was the Grand Tour portrait, mostly for British tourists and which was both a memento of their travels, but also was serving as a way to display their wealth and power. It is definitely an intersection of travel and art that's relevant to at least mention in this episode. These portraits were mostly drawn by the Italian artist Pompeo Bettoni, who lived from 1708 to 1787, and whose career as a professional artist 
was mostly spent drawing the portraits of the British tourists who came into Rome during the 1740s and 1750s. He painted up to 225 tourist portraits that we know of. This painting was a portrait of the tourist clothed with wealth and highly decorated clothing. And they meant something as a way of asserting wealth, not only by the fact that they could afford to commission Pompeo Bettoni, who was a very popular artist of the time. And I think it's important to remember as well that oil paintings are something that take a lot of time to create, just by the manner of the formal medium it is. Oil paint needs to dry completely before you can apply another layer of it. There is also the level of detail that Batoni put into the paintings to consider, with the level of intricacy and precision, and these paintings were huge, being roughly 150 centimeters by 240 centimeters. So it is understandable that being able to afford such a painting is a very obvious signifier of one's wealth and social status. Batoni was especially good at carefully crafting and arranging his portraits as to very efficiently display the status of the young tourist. The iconography that was in the paintings was thus used to achieve this goal. The subjects were depicted in their finest clothing with a vaguely Italian, classically inspired background behind them. And the inclusion of classical iconography, such as sculptures, paintings, as well as various accessories of learning, such as globes or mathematical instruments or several books. And these are a means of conveying the tourist's culture and knowledge. The subject could be pictured writing a letter or simply standing there gravely. All of these elements were supposed to give you the aura that these were highly cultivated and refined people. And this was conveyed through the mean of painting. The images mean something, and you have to be able to understand them. So this is why, in my opinion, critical and visual analysis is deeply important whether it is like this case when we're talking about these old 18th century portraits of rich white men and what those portraits were trying to convey. Or, more concretely, images are increasingly becoming one of the main ways we communicate. And to be honest, they always have been an important mean of communication. And it's important to remember that, that every piece of art or image is trying to tell you something. Now, the way you will receive it is another thing, but being aware of how images can communicate can definitely make you less vulnerable to propaganda and the dissemination of bigoted ideologies, because visual language is a way of communicating that is incredibly efficient. Batoni used his art to really help assert his client's position in society. But think of how publicity is used to make you desire things, 
or how images can be used as a way to perpetuate racist stereotypes. And in this day and age, we are surrounded by images more than ever, whether it's art, films, videos, or, or any kind of visual content, really. And this is why visual literacy, being able to look at an image and be able to read it, is an incredibly important skill to master. During that same era, so during the 18th century and onwards to the 19th century, traveling became a bit more commonplace due to the technological advancements, which brought a lot of art and writing about those travels, a lot of which were from Europeans and their visits to non-Western colonies. These travel books and sketchbooks are unfortunately indissociable from colonialism and imperialism that made their existence possible in the first place. No matter how you want to pretend colonialism isn't a thing, it still is that during the 19th century and even onwards to the early 20th century, whenever white people went quote-unquote exploring, what they mean is they went to solidify the colonial presence in those areas. And they show a very fetishizing perspective on these foreign places. And their art depicts this outlook that they have. There is also the whole genre of painting that's known as Orientalism. We have talked a bit in episode 6 of Bayam Haitin. But France was an imperialist power during the 19th century that had a lot of North African and Arab territories, such as Algeria, Tunisia, Lebanon, and more. Orientalism, the art movement, and not the book by Edward Said, which by the way is a cornerstone of the post-colonial critical approach to art history, and that I wholeheartedly recommend reading. Edward Said's writing in general is one of the first things I suggest for people wanting to dive more into a post-colonial approach to media. So, back to the movement of Orientalism. It's the specific painting genre during the 19th century by European people, which represents the vision of the mystical Orient. Once again, here we are talking about a very fake and constructed vision of non-white people, of the Orient, especially of North African, Arab, and Asian people, with works of art such as The Snake Charmer by Jean-Léon Gérôme in 1879, or Women of Algiers in Their Apartment by Eugène Delacroix in 1834, you can see that there's a very stealthy look by white people on the exotic and mysterious Orient. It is then not a reflection of the truth, but a depiction of the imagined exoticism of the Orient. So it is through these images that the creation of the Orient of the other was defined. And it is by understanding how these images and visual tropes that still somehow define the visions and stereotypes of the other work, 
that we can understand the long-lasting impact of these images. As traveling became more widely available, a lot more people were taking vacations and traveling abroad. People that did not historically have the disposable income nor the freedom to travel. So the industry of tourism was thus booming due to the democratization of traveling. Of this becoming something that was accessible to the average person, and not only to the upper classes and the ultra-rich, we have to acknowledge the work of labor unions in giving people guaranteed paid time off during the year which meant that workers were now having the opportunity to simply leave for a week or two per year for the first time ever. As a side note, please support your unions and mutual aid. This is how we win against the crushing weight of capitalism and get better things for ourselves. Billionaires do not care for you, and there is a better chance of people becoming homeless than billionaires. So please, stop licking the boots of Elon Musk. It is really not worth the embarrassment, and he will never love you back. During the 19th century, the development of the train and the railways made it so that distances felt closer. And with the upcoming progress for cruise ships during the turn of the century and the plane during the 1920s, The world felt both larger and smaller than it ever was. You could go to places faster and in a much more comfortable manner than you ever could before this. And people took advantage of it. Of course, at the beginning, it was mostly rich people who got to take advantage of the newest and most luxurious comforts of traveling, like the comforts of an extremely luxurious cruise ship, even though if these ships ended up sinking to the bottom of the ocean, rest in peace, Titanic, or the glamorous Hollywood actors and actresses, who were the first ones to really utilize the plane. It was the age of the jet set, of luxurious travels for those who could afford it. This new accessibility and mundanity eventually of those new travel methods also made it so that the industry of traveling became much more common and ordinary to the average person. So while the rich people were traveling really luxuriously, normal people could also finally afford to travel, even if not with the same luxuries. And all of these factors can explain why people were simply traveling more which made it so that the industry of traveling and tourism was soaring. And with it came the need of promoting the destinations, as well as the airways, railways, and hotels. It is capitalism, baby. And this is where the advertisement poster comes in. Those very vibrant and colorful posters were used as a way to attract one might even say seduce, the consumer to a very specific destination or way of transport. The field of graphic design was progressing very quickly during those years, 
before the television was widespread everywhere, before the internet, and before our age of current mass communication. It was simply the most efficient way to reach your audience, by way of using posters, brochures, pamphlets. So during the first half of the 20th century, the printed medium, in essence, was simply your best bet to make money and to encourage people to travel abroad or even domestically and to encourage the booming industry of tourism. Print was a cheap distribution method and with the progress of the 19th century print and technological progress, it quickly became a widespread way of communicating and advertising. With an easily recognizable visual identity and branding, it is very easy to leave a mark in people's mind and make sure they remember your specific advertisement. Those travel posters also had a very standardized sizing and layout and general aesthetic, so there was a cohesive visual identity across the board for these posters. The art of advertising, of selling an idea, which is definitely more difficult than people might initially think so, is at the intersection of art and marketing. Advertising is mainly about efficient communication. You need to be able to really convey what you want in just a matter of seconds. The visuals need to be striking and grab the attention of the people passing by. And this is why so much thought is always being put behind these seemingly simple posters. But outward simplicity does not necessarily mean intrinsic simplicity. And the way posters are being used and created is a complex process that has an end goal. It can be informational, political propaganda, protest, or, in our case, advertisement. But a poster is usually created with an intention in mind. And when it comes to these travel advertisements, the end goal, after all, was to make money. And as always, death to capitalism, but they did create some pretty stuff. When it comes to posters, there seems to always be the opinion going around that graphic design or illustration, especially when it's created with a commercial intent and purpose rather than inspiration and creative impulse, that it is less genuine and authentic than other works of art, that it is not real art. And I hugely disagree with this state, personally. First of all, I think that every artist deserves to be paid for their work. And working as an artist means working for money. So there is that. And second of all, even if created within certain visual confines and for commercial and advertisement purposes, I cannot help but feel the wonder and escape that these posters inspire. And I can only imagine that it must have still taken talent and artistic skills to create those. So 
So I think these posters are very much within the stroke of art. These posters were selling a dream of luxury, of pleasure, of sensual travels and desires. With time, photography eventually replaced these illustrations and painted adverts during the 1960s and onwards, as color photography became much more commonplace and cheaper than commissioning visual artists to draw and create illustrated posters. But during the whole of the first half of the 20th century, it was still the norm to have these type of illustrated posters as a mean of advertisement. And they all followed a very specific set of visual conventions and had a very strong visual identity and branding. So these travel posters and postcards often featured a very bold typography over top of the image, Welcome to Istanbul, or Welcome to Athens, and were often painted in very vibrant colors and represented very typical views of the country or area that is advertised. The colors that are used are often bold and vibrant, the shining turquoise of the sea, the bright skies and the lush greens, the sun and the fluffy clouds in the distance, giving the viewer the desire to escape the dreary and gray routine of their lives. The art style of these posters will usually follow the graphic design and art trends of the time. So you will see the posters of the 1900s being made in a very Art Nouveau stylized manner, and the 1920s with Art Deco, and so on and so forth. It is thus a reflection of passing trends. During the beginning of the 20th century, one of the main travel experiences was through these extremely luxurious cruisers, very much imagined the Titanic, as a sort of visual reference for this. With the popularity of these cruisers, a lot of new cruise lines appeared, and the need for promoting and advertising led to a lot of these travel posters being created. Travel posters artists such as A.M. Cassandra, who worked in Paris and ended up setting his own advertising agency, Allian Graphique, where he created travel posters for advertising purposes, such as the one for the cruise ship L'Atlantique. His art was heavily inspired by the graphic design and art style trends of the time. So there was a lot of influence from Cubism, Surrealism, as well as the style of design and aesthetic that was popularized by the Bauhaus. I don't think I would be able to get into everything that is the Bauhaus now, but to be very brief about it, it is a German school of architecture, design, and craft that was created in 1919 and ended up hugely influencing modern ideas of design and creativity afterwards. Even though the first commercial flight happened in 1914, it would be well until the end of the First World War and into the 1920s that the general public would finally feel at ease with the idea of traveling by air flight.
With this began the proliferation of multiple airlines, as this way of transport continued to become more common and widespread. Even though the plane was starting to assert its presence in the world of mainstream travel, during the beginning of the 20th century, the train still remained the most reliable and most used method to go from one place to another. And railways company was still using posters to advertise their lines and attract clients who wanted to go on a vacation. Some of them could be a hugely leisurely and luxurious experience, and thus were also advertised as such. One only has to think about the place the train holds into the popular imaginary. With works such as The Murder on the Orient Express, a book by Agatha Christie, a story that even though was murderous, as the title would suggest, showcased just how fanciful this journey on a highly luxurious train car could be. All of this, combined with the evocative and dreamy designs of the posters, created an imaginary that really sold you the idea of an extravagant and leisurely trip. I wanted to see if someday I could offer my mother a travel on that one, as she adores Edith Christie's birth. But unfortunately, at 17,000 euros for a single person, it is uh, deeply out of my budget. This is what those posters were trying to sell you. A dream. The posters for the Orient Express often depicts images of the city of Istanbul, its final destination, or one of its various stops along the way, such as Milan or Paris. The same company that owned the Orient Express, the CIWL, also owned the Blue Train, a train that really plays on this extravagant lust of the 1920s, and which traveled from Calais to the Riviera, while the travelers could experience a very comfortable and enjoyable experience. This train was also advertised with different posters through the years, first by the artist Alu, in a very art deco aesthetic, as far for the times. The characteristics of this art style lay mostly in, its, in a very simplified aesthetic, with flat colors and shapes and a very streamlined and geometrical visual look. The art of traveling also became an enticing and somewhat inspiring subject that featured in books and cinema of the time. Even with the democratization of traveling and this now almost mundanity, due to the fact that it was now easier to travel and move across the globe than ever before, there is still that glamour and wonder about the art of traveling and taking a vacation in a beautiful and sunny location. And cinema uses this theme beautifully. We can think of movies such as the 1953 Roman Holiday with Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck, or the 1955 To Catch a Thief with the lovely Cary Grant and Grace Kelly wearing beautiful outfits near the French Riviera and trying to, you know, catch a thief. Another of these summer movies is 
Purple Noon in 1960, starring Alain Delon, and is one of the cinematic adaptations of the book written by Patricia Highsmith, The Talented Mr. Ripley, which is equally a summary escapist, but also with much more murder. A very good movie, I highly recommend it. These movies with the extremely lush and sunny sets near the sea and under a clear sky do remind me of these travel advertisement posters with their beautiful aesthetic that makes you dream of escape and warm days. Even though these posters were selling a dream, it's important to think about how these posters were posing on the destinations they were advertising a very distinctly Western days. If there's something I hope I can at least teach, is the importance of looking in art. Who is doing the looking and who is being seen? And this is always very important to consider when you want to understand the work of art, especially since, as the audience, you are now also part of the game by looking at the artwork. Anyway, not to go on a tangent here, but it's those dynamics that are very intrinsic to the analysis and comprehension surrounding the context of a particular piece of visual art. So with this in mind, that these travel posters are being created mostly by white Western people to push people to buy a ticket to whatever destination, it can explain that it is very easy to cross a line from wanting to represent something that's typical, even slightly stereotypical, the same way Italy has pasta and London has its red telephone boxes, to being outright racist. And while not all of these posters were offensive, most of them are really just amazingly beautiful depictions of foreign landscapes in the sun that simply make you want to pat your things and leave. Enough of them were often straight up racist though and were portraying very offensive depictions of non-white people in a way that feels reductive and tropey. And while some just had the lesser crime of being extremely fetishizing and orientalist, other were simply disgusting, honestly, with terrible portrayals of black people and indigenous people, and a show of anti-blackness racism that is simply unacceptable, even though it was still the norm in the beginning of the 20th century. And it is not because one can deeply love and appreciate these posters on a personal basis, aesthetically and visually, I know I do, that we can simply ignore and gloss over this sort of thing. We have to contend with this sort of context to the history of art and visual culture. As I was saying earlier, an image could simply be a pretty landscape, but also with the context of it being posters created by Western companies, 
It makes you think about how they perceived these foreign countries and the concept of the other. Before we go, I put a bunch of relevant resources on today's subject in the show notes as usual. As always, all the relevant images will also be on all of our social platforms at Imaginarium underscore pod on Instagram as well as on Twitter. This podcast was written, narrated, and produced by yours truly, Najah. If you want to support this podcast, you can do so on patreon.com slash I want to take this opportunity to thank my patrons, Meili, Ilya Sala, Chonlita Pechinuyan, Jack, Sam Hurst, Jenny, Jay Harker, as well as Natalie. Thank you so much for making the work I do possible. Today's recommendation of the day is the 2013 British TV series called Dancing on the Edge, starring Kiwetel Ejiofor, Angel Colby, and Matthew Good, to name only a few of the main cast. This series is a six-episode show centered around the black jazz band in the London of the 1930s. It is brilliant, and the soundtrack is also delightful. On this, I wish you all a very lovely day, evening, or night. And I hope to see you again very soon.